This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. This last week was arguably one of the most amazing weeks uh, of our year, and it always is. The Alumni Summit is spectacular. It's just very, very precious, very, very sweet, and it's hard to describe it even for those of us that are present in it. It's like, why is that so special? Uh, Because it's a little different than the normal uh, training here at Ellerslie. And some people have said it's because we don't have any homework uh, during it. And I, I, you know, I don't know if I, if I want to encourage that thought, even though, you know, it, it has some uh, reason to it. But it is a very sweet uh, presence of God that is there, and the fellowship is sweet. I think it's because every, usually when people first arrive here at Ellerslie, they're trembling. And the first week or two, People are like deer in headlights uh, as the word of God is coming forth and they feel so smallish in light of his bigness. I mean, it is a profound thing to just enter into that much focus on the word of God and it changes you. But if you ever go back twice through Ellerslie, you realize how much you missed in those first two weeks because you were so distracted with a lot of internal issues, just sort of working through things and wrestling through things like, God, who are you in my life? Am I willing to give you everything? And you go back through Ellers, it's like, wow, there was a lot that I didn't hear in this time. And that is true. And I think the Alumni Summit is sort of like that, where a lot of the noise is cleared and you're just able to immediately enter into the beauty of Christ's presence, both his presence uh, via the spirit and his presence via the body. It's very, very precious. But what we did this last week, and this is sort of Philip Hartman's idea, is like, what if we did a throwback and we did sort of retro Ellerslie and we went back to year one of Ellerslie, which is now 13 years ago, and we actually took some of our key messages that really defined us, you know, even globally speaking, people around the world, you know, have followed this ministry and there's certain messages that just sort of hallmarked us and those messages even made their way into our training. And then over time, because we started with a 12-week training, and we've, we've shrunk it down to five weeks, and you say, whoa, why'd you do that? Well, it actually was a tactical decision in many fronts, because right at the five-week point, students start to feel very comfortable here. And it's funny, because it's like, well, that would be the goal, wouldn't it, be that they feel comfortable? Yeah, but when they feel comfortable, they ease up in their intensity of pursuing Jesus. And so what we want is for that intensity to maintain. So what we do is we send them home right when they start to feel comfortable, and then they're feeling uncomfortable again. Why? Because they're now home in an environment where they didn't oftentimes live these things out. Now they know they need to, and so they immediately have to go into application mode. And it has been very effective. I know that sounds strange that to shrink from 12 weeks to five weeks is more effective. How could seven weeks less training be more effective? And yet, because of the need in the church today to not just be hearers, but to be doers, it has actually increased the effectiveness and the stayability of the Ellerslie alumni. And so it's a a strange assessment that we have made over that time to to actually make that declaration. But in the process, just imagine this. If you're going to trim out seven weeks of Ellerslie, what are you going to trim out? 
And a lot of that is some of these cuts that we have brought back this week. And there have been a few people saying, why isn't that in your curriculum? And we're looking at each other going, I'm not exactly sure, but look at Philip. Philip's the one responsible for that. Because <laughs> it really has been a rich week. It was like, wow, that is a really powerful message. And I think it's been really fun for us as leaders just to resurrect or revive, resuscitate uh, some of these old messages because it brings back so many memories. If you followed me this week, my whole week is remembrance. My mom died last Friday, and so on Sunday morning of last week, I did a tribute uh, to her. It's not in the sermon, but that is going to end up in Friday's Daily Thunder. I tagged it on the end. I came up with a creative way of doing that. And then uh, Wednesdays, uh, the secret was my Daily Thunder episode. It was the secrets of room 5235. And I was rehearsing and remembering all the people that have impacted my life outside of my family. It's like, okay, let's take for granted that my family is, is invested in my life. But how about outside my family? That was very, very special. On Friday, I gave a tribute message in Daily Thunder to my parents, who have both passed away in the last year and a half. And... So my whole week has been sort of one of thanksgiving and remembrance. But then think about that. And then we have retro Ellerslie where I'm remembering what God has done in and through this ministry. And just going back to that first year is very, very precious. So last Sunday, I picked sort of a retro message and I revived it. It was called the Coronation of Napoleon. And that was fun. Today, I, you know, it's funny because I was actually not planning on doing this, but then I, got, I, have this, I have the bug of retro, of throwback. And so I figured this is probably my last opportunity to do this for a long time until Philip is like, hey, remember like seven years ago when we did a retro Ellerslie? Let's do that again. So until that time, I figured I would might as well milk this for all it's worth. So I have another retro message. And it's almost exactly 13 years ago to the day that I gave uh, this message, the measurement of a man. Uh, how many of you were here when I gave that? So isn't that funny? There's like four people here, oh, five. Okay, five uh, people that were here for that. Isn't that funny out of this whole congregation? Uh, very, very special message. I remember delivering the message. I remember actually looking out and seeing very specific faces in the crowd that day and knowing that God was speaking through this message. And it was, it, it's interesting just that I can go back 13 years and have such vivid recall of giving a specific message. Rarely does that happen. I remember the message, but I don't remember always the delivery of the message. I it just sort of have a placeholder memory like, that was an awkward message to give, or that was really powerful. You know, I just sort of clump it into different categories. And I remember certain ones where I had so much trembling in my soul, even as I was preparing to give it and even as I was giving it. Other ones which have a sweetness to it, where the presence of God was just so beautiful, beautifully overlaid or underlaid uh, with the message. And this one, I remember the forcefulness of bringing it out. I remember the clarity uh, from it. And so it's interesting to actually go back to a message like, what if, what if I delivered that afresh? And so I spent, you know, over the past couple of days just meditating upon that and praying about that. And so uh, originally delivered August 1st, 2010. Isn't that fun? Here we are, August 6th, 2023. Uh, the measurement of a man. Now, if you were to say uh, a man, 
because that could sound like this is just a man's message, and it's, it's not, uh, because the measurement technically that we're giving is of the man. I could call this message the measurement of the man, because the man, if you put that in caps, it's going to be Jesus Christ. And Jesus is actually going to come from his high and lofty position in the heavenly realms. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth, right? His beginnings isn't, aren't in the womb of Mary. He, you know, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And so his goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. That's, the, that's the, the, even the prophecy about him. His, his goings forth aren't from the womb of Mary. That's just a beginning of his manhood, where he is going to adorn himself with this very skin that we wear, this very frame and structure that we wear, and he's going to demonstrate for us how a man ought to live. He's going to basically come down and say, hey guys, let me show you what you were created to do. This is how this body is supposed to work. Now granted, he's going to do it perfectly because his father isn't Adam. His father is in fact God Almighty. He is the son of God biologically speaking. He doesn't have an earthly father in the biological sense. He has a heavenly father and an earthly mother. So he is 100% God and 100% man simultaneously, which ironically is an incredible picture of the text of Scripture too. Is the text of Scripture just the writings of men? Well, it is, but it's the writings of men as carried along by God Almighty. So it is, in fact, 100% God and 100% man simultaneously. The mystery of the text is also the mystery of the man. And that man is going to grow up amidst this world and he is going to demonstrate how growth and maturity works. But he's going to do it perfectly because he is, in fact, God. And he, but he's going to demonstrate a dependency in a perfect way upon his father. So that the works that he does are not his own, but he is going to do the Father's works. Now that is a phenomenal, fantastical concept. That even though he is God, he is going to become dependent as a man ought to be. Because even though he's going to be the perfect man, he is not going to take it into his own madness to pull off his life. He is going to depend upon the supernatural realm to infuse his madness to demonstrate the invisible realm known as the kingdom of heaven. That when you see Jesus, you actually see the Father. And then he's basically going to say, yeah, like that. That we, in, our, in and of ourselves, are not meant to pull this off, but we are meant to be dependent upon him, the indwelling Christ, the indwelling spirit, so that we, like Christ, do not do our own work, but we do his work. We do not speak our own words, we speak his words. And so the man, Jesus, is going to come to this earth and demonstrate this life. Now this message is very, very unique because it is cobbled together in a human way. And there are a lot of vulnerabilities to this message because it has some clayish uh, elements to it. And that is because I'm going to organize uh, a measuring system for a man. And it's humanly derived, okay? I'm going to acknowledge that. Even though everything you're going to get is the word of God, there is a human dimension of organization to this, and it's an imperfect one. And I have to explain that ahead of time, lest you take this as doctrine in and of itself. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through and I'm going to show levels of growth from, you could say, 1 to 10. Have you guys ever heard of like a perfect 10? You know, in gymnastics, that means a perfect routine. But also, if you're talking about men and women, you know, a 10 
is one very sexy character, right? And so it's someone who is developed well. And so if we were to look at that in the kingdom of heaven, that a one being on the lower end of maturity in the spectrum of maturity and a 10 being fully matured, well, what God is growing us up to is full maturity. And that's something we can agree scripturally on, even though I don't think God is gonna use the numbers one through 10 to describe it. Does that make sense? That's my addition to it. So the scale of one to 10. As we go through this scale of one to 10, you're gonna notice that God doesn't always work as evenly as my list does. You know, where God grows us from level one to level two. You see, we would work according to a list like this, chronologically, and you go from three to four, and you go from seven to eight, right? I mean, that would just be how it would work. God doesn't work as evenly as that. That's why I'm saying there's some clay attached to this scale because God could be working on level four while he's still working on level one with us. And so it's an imperfect thing, but at the same time, I think you can appreciate it as you look at it, especially those of us that have been around the block in Christianity. We're like, oh, oh, I I can see that. There is a growth and a maturity where you're going to recognize level 10, is pretty special. And level one, yeah, been there and spent a lot of time there. <laughs> level one, I would say if, if we were to, because this is the other vulnerability we have, is to measure ourselves. I'm not actually saying that's wrong in this. It's just that it can be dangerous at a certain level. Because what we want to do is see Jesus when we see the, hear this message. But it's hard not to measure ourselves against Jesus when we're doing it. It's like, where am I? How far along in this journey am I? And it's an imperfect science. Like most people would probably say, I'm somewhere around (laughs) 1.25. That would probably be my guess. It's like, we aren't that well developed compared to this list of growth and maturity, but that's part of the spectacular nature of this message, I think. Is most of us have no idea how mature you can get. But when you start studying Jesus, you're like, whoa, there's a lot to go after. And this is a special message, very special to me, very dear to my heart to my memory. So the 10 degrees of manhood, and uh, <clears throat> correct that, 11, because I'm going to use zero as one of the measuring uh, points. So technically it's the 11 degrees of manhood, but to call zero a degree of manhood, it might be a, a, something that isn't accurate either. So maybe it still is the 10 degrees of manhood, but we're going to have 11 degrees. Level zero. So I came up with names for each of these levels, and they're very creative. The zero. Uh, Isn't that a great name for a man uh, who doesn't know Jesus? You see, you could be a great man. You could be an intellectual man. You could be a powerful man. You could be a political leader. You could be a, have an IQ of 172 and come up with grand inventions and wild philosophies and be a zero in the measurement of heaven. You're not even blipping on the Richter scale. You're making no impact in the kingdom side of things. You see, God designed us to influence the kingdom of heaven. But when we are outside of that, we actually have zero impact on the things that matter to God, and we are actually only sponsoring the things that are opposite of God. And so you could be great in the world's eyes. You could be a world-class athlete, You could be a fantastic artist or actress or actor. You could be very skilled in your craft and be a zero, which is a weird thought to think that you could train daily to be excellent in something and still not measure in the kingdom of heaven at all. 
Because what God measures and what moves God and what sensitizes God and what God applauds and what God cheers is very different than what the world does. God is going to give grace to those that move in his direction, but he is going to resist those that move against him. So God gives grace to the humble, but resists the proud. And so a zero is in the zone of proud. They think that they are enough, that apart from God, they are sufficient. They don't need a savior. They don't even recognize their need of a savior, which is why they are a zero. They don't recognize that the way they are living leads to death. It leads to destruction. They can't perceive that. And if they are perceiving it, they're arrogant enough to think that they're okay with that. They have never tasted eternal condemnation, so they don't know the fire they're messing with. They have never been awakened from their selfish stupor. They're a zero. Proverbs 16.25, there is a way that seems right to a zero, says technically, to a man, but its end is the way of death. So when you're a zero, you're convinced that your way is right. You're convinced that you're okay. And that's the great disease and depravity of a zero is they cannot see their problem. They have an intrinsic endemic issue that they cannot see. And as a result, like that frog that is in slowly heating up water, they will never notice to even jump out of it as it goes to a boil and they roast in it. Proverbs 7 is going to talk about the zero, and it's going to talk about this woman, this adulterous woman, this lady that is going to bait him away from the path of life into destruction. And I saw among the simple, I perceived among the youths a zero. It actually doesn't say that in scripture. It says a young man devoid of understanding. Same thing, guys. Because he has understanding maybe of the world, but he doesn't have understanding of the spiritual zone. With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately, he went after her. As an ox goes to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stalks till an arrow struck his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost him his life. A zero. Lord Jesus, rescue us. Rescue us from this. This is precisely what the church is. <laughs> We are at the edge of one and zero constantly looking over and saying, please take my hand. Please take my hand. There is hope. There is life. And that's what a one is. Technically, if I could describe it, is a new birth. It is someone who has exited the kingdom of darkness and has entered the kingdom of light. That doesn't mean they've matured any more than a baby coming out of a birth canal and breathing its first breath and crying its first cry is a fully mature life, but there is life. There is breath. There is something new, and that is the new creation. We must be born again. And that process of going from death unto life is the essence of what we function as, as, in, as the body. Even though we are growing up unto a full maturity, we are working to bring people to life, to be a part, to be like a midwife to the process of delivery. In the Welsh Revival, there was a metaphor or a story that would be shared a lot as a way of articulating to that time period and to the people group of that time period how things worked spiritually. 
And so they would use the idea of being lost at sea. And so you have these waves in the ocean that are just crashing. And if you're in the middle of the ocean, you're free floating and you don't have anything to hold on to, how long do you think you're gonna last? As big waves crash over you and the salt water is getting into your body and you're like frigid cold, you're going to eventually die. And that's precisely the state of the soul. But many of us are floating along and we don't realize that we're slowly chilling and we're slowly freezing over and we're slowly drowning. We're, un we're not aware of our destitute state. The grace of God enters our life and awakens us to the fact that we're drowning. It's actually a gift of grace. It is not God being mean to us that he's gonna show us our sin. He's actually lovingly awakening us to say, you're dying, I would like to help. You're dying, I have done everything you need to be rescued. And so in the Welsh Revival, they're going to use the story of a man realizing that he is, he is sinking in the vast ocean, and he's reaching out, trying to find things to support him. He even tries to hold on to another uh, floating character by him, but that guy goes down as he tries to hold on to him. Another man cannot support you. Even your own physical strength is failing. You're looking for a log. You're looking for something that would buoy you. There's nothing. And so... What they said is, but there is something. There is a ship on these high seas that is in search of you. And he responds to your call. And when you cry out his name and you call for his help, he will find you. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus! Boom! The ship is there. And immediately... You're clinging to the side of the ship. And though your body is still in the cold water, you have salvation. And so I'm going to give a name to that, and we're going to call it the gripped. You see, this is where a lot of Christians live their entire life. They live clinging to the side of the boat. Do they have a hold on the boat? Yes. But the boat is actually designed as a carrying vehicle for them. It's not meant to just be gripped on the outside. That's just a first step. But the church today has a stunting in its discipleship where we oftentimes just pat the guy on the head after he's gripping and saying, well, okay, you're taken care of. Next. Instead of recognizing that Jesus is setting his hands over the side saying, now take my hands. I want to pull you in. And he wants to remove the chill from our body. And he wants to warm us up. Why? So that he can free up these hands from gripping the side of a boat to being useful to serve in his kingdom. You know how he reaches over and pulls people up? He does it, yes, but he uses us. But our hands are usually occupied clinging for our own life. Most of us spend most of our Christianity dealing with our own stuff instead of having the freedom to deal with other people's stuff. Because there's a lot of stuff out there that needs to be dealt with. But when you're dealing with your own stuff, it's really hard to take your grip and spend it. God wants to lift you up, but being gripped? Hey guys, I'm not gonna complain about it. This is life, this is where it starts. This is where it begins, but it doesn't end there. So Psalm 18.6 is gonna talk about the gripped. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and, his, and my cry came before him, even to his ears. 
Psalm 18, 16 through 17 and verse 19. He sent from above, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the gripped? There is true worship celebration for the fact that that man or that woman has called on Jesus Christ and they have been rescued. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. So level two, the given. So one of the ways that we transfer, first of all, the reason we even have the boat and we have the grip on the boat is because of our faith. God has given us an alertness to the fact that we have a need, but he also has awakened us and warmed us to the fact that he meets that need. And it's a hard thing to describe how we awaken from our stupor, but it's the work of the Spirit of God in our life. He is choosing us. He is revealing himself to us, and we are responding. And so one of the things he wants to reveal to us, and this is what gets stunted in the church, which is the revelatory device of the church to explain the invisible attributes of heaven. It's like, this is how it works. This is how you grow up. But if the church doesn't know how to disciple anymore, we oftentimes just pat people on the head that are gripping the side of a boat. But Jesus purchased your body. He desires to use you. He has a design for you so that his Holy Spirit could fill you and you could be useful to him. Huh? Well, that's a novel concept for modern Christianity. And even though many of you in here know that, you need to realize that not many people do which is why you become very, very important in the landscape of modern Christianity to convey not just believe upon Jesus Christ and be saved and cling to the side of a boat, but he purchased your body with his blood and he wants to fill it with his Holy Spirit so that he can work through it in this world. No longer your works, but his works that will change the world in which you live. And that's the given. Lord, here I am. Take me. Take this body. Use it. Fill it. So Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Lord, I give up my life in exchange for yours. Hudson Taylor called it the exchanged life. My life belongs to you, Jesus, so that I receive your life. And that's the great secret of Christianity. That's how it works in this world. The fact that we have had a stunted version of Christianity is just, this is what we've inherited. Like I said, most people, when they're looking at this list, they're like, where am I in this list? And that's why I said, usually like 1.25. It's like, well, God has a little access to my life and I am clinging to the side of a boat and half my body's in the water. I'm not exactly sure I'm even in the boat yet. And while that would be nice, wouldn't it be nice to be in the boat, not in the frigid cold waters and have the waves crashing over you constantly where you could be useful? And that's just the beginning of the list, guys. I mean, we're just getting started in the message. Number three, or level three, the immovable. Well, I tell you what, as I go through some of these things, there's such an attraction in our soul to this. It's like, I want that. Imagine winds and rains beating against your house and you will not move. Imagine being in that boat. Remember when Jesus is sleeping? I always want to say supposedly sleeping. It's still hard for me to imagine he's sleeping right then. And, and the disciples are bailing water. Like, oh! They says their lives were in jeopardy. Don't you want to be in that boat and just lay down with Jesus and go to sleep? 
It's like he's in control. The creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who made winds and waves, is in the boat with me. I think I'm fine. That's being immovable, and it's a growth of faith. This is what God wants to do in our life. So many of us are shakable. We have, I mean, I get hit with the same things you do. Now, I don't even listen to the news anymore, but that doesn't mean the news doesn't try and creep in through every open window or anything around me. It's like, uh, beware. Terrible things just up ahead. Yeah, I mean, the economy is going to collapse any moment now. Now, it may. However, it doesn't matter. To me, my soul is not dependent upon a healthy economy. My soul is not dependent upon a constitutional republic that is stable with a good guy in office. My soul is dependent upon Jesus on his throne and all things beneath his feet. And I think I got that settled. I do not need to be shaken like the rest of the world. I have access to something that is immovable. It's like rock and I am fixed to it. And if he's not going anywhere, I don't need to go anywhere. But most Christians, and you have to go with me on this and, and understand and agree, have never tasted that. So when something like COVID strikes our nation, we are not ready for it. We're giving way to anxiety and fear just like the medical system is trying to get us to. It's like, oh no! As opposed to, hey guys, the church has weathered things far more difficult than this for thousands of years. With triumph. Come on, guys, let's get our game on. But we don't know our game. We have not been acquainted with it, so we are very easily shaken. Romans 4.20, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Yeah, like that. Abrahamic faith, staggered not at the promise of God. Psalm 46, 1 through 2, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. The most extreme things could happen, by the way. Can you think of anything more extreme than that? Though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Try and think of something worse. You can't, can you? I mean, that's, about, that's as bad as it can get. And we will not be moved. We will not be shaken. We will not fear. Why? Because God is our refuge and strength. He's not going anywhere. I'm affixed to God. And as a believer, you don't want to just be clinging to the side of a boat. You don't even just want to be in the boat. You want to have Jesus Christ firmly established in you, where you know that you know that you are secure in him, no matter what is happening in this world. And this is a growth. This is part of the maturity that God desires to build in us. This is Jesus Christ, the measurement of the man. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. Isn't that great? Level four, the harnessed. Now on Wednesday of this week, during the alumni summit, I gave a message and it was called the cherry to the cherubim. It was a throwback message and it's going through the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is not the typical book you go through. You just avoid it. You act like, oh, yes, and the book of Ezekiel said something, but uh, we're going to look elsewhere. Uh, the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is very confusing, but there's certain interpretive devices that help you, and ironically, it's later in Ezekiel. Like in the very first chapter of Ezekiel, you have this weird thing going on where Ezekiel is by the, uh, by the river Kabar, and he sees a vision, and this thing is coming out of heaven with wheels that have eyes on it, 
And it has wheels within wheels. And we're like, oh, and the rims, the rims are terrible. And they have eyes on them. We're like, uh, okay, I'm having a tough time envisioning whatever this is. And there's living creatures. Like, thanks for that description. That really helps me understand what that is. Living creatures. It's like, well, I mean, there's a lot of living creatures. But these are not living creatures like we've seen. These are living creatures with four wings, with hands of a man, feet like a hind. They have four faces, face of a man, face of an ox, face of an eagle, face of a lion. We're like, okay. And they move like lightning. When their wings flap, it sounds like thunder or the uh, cataract of like Niagara Falls. Yeah. They're called cherubim. You see, that's not explained in the first few chapters. That's explained later. The same vision is seen and then it's described. Those are cherubs, each one of them. And together they're called the cherubim. Satan or Lucifer is a cherub. It's actually a description of the highest of God's creation, the most powerful, the most wise of God's creation. They're angelic beings, and they are very powerful, very wise. And yet these cherub are carrying the glory of God. On top of them is this platform that's like crystal. And on top of the crystal is a throne. And on that throne is God Almighty. And so I'm going to describe it as I described it for them on Wednesday. This is the mobile holy of holies. God is like mobile coming to this earth. It's an incredible picture of the gospel right there. But it is so weird <laughs> when you see it that you're like, okay. But wow, if you could grasp this, because way, with the way it's described, these cherub, these cherubim that are carrying this platform, this, what's called the chariot of the cherubim, they only do that which the one on that throne asks them to do. If he says, to the right, they go to the right. If he says, straight forward, they go straight forward. If he says, stop, they stop. Now, these are creatures so much more intelligent and powerful and capable than we are. And yet, even the cherubim do exactly what the one enthroned on high asks them to do. Now, here's the shocker. Paul says, uh, do you not know? that you are that chariot of the cherubim. You are the mobile holy of holies. You are the temple of the living God. That God has humbled himself to move from cherubim as his carrying device to move to, uh, to us. To, 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 to us? We are pathetic. And some of you are like, hey, speak for yourself. I know I'm speaking for you too, just in case you don't know it. We do not deserve the right to carry the glory of God. And yet he has chosen weak things through which to reveal his strength. He has chosen us, but will we get our cue from the cherubim? And they're like, I'd like to teach you how to do this. You know, now that you're taking this job over of carrying the holy of holies into this world, let me teach you a few things, says the cherub. When he says go straight, you go straight. When he says go right, you go right. When he says turn to the left, you turn to the left. When he says stop, you stop. And here we are as humans going, I think I know what's best. I think I know how to carry this. No, no, no. you don't. He does. Even Jesus, when he was carrying the glory of the Father, only did that which the Father asked of him. He was harnessed. God Almighty came to this earth, took on a human form, and showed us how to carry the glory of God, how to carry that throne, how to defer to one higher even though he is the highest. How does that work? He's showing us how it works. Ezekiel 1.12, 
And each one, speaking to the cherubim, went straight forward. They went wherever the spirit wanted to go. And they did not turn when they went. Listen to Ezekiel 10, 11, speaking of the same thing, the same chariot of the cherubim. When they went, they followed in the direction the head was facing. They did not turn aside when they went. You do know, do know who the head of this chariot is. His name is Jesus Christ. Revelation 14, 4 speaks of a similar concept. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. And Galatians 2.20 sums it up in a very different way. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It is no longer I who has an agenda with this chariot. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh or in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So guys, this is quite extraordinary what we're covering so far. Now we're, we're just reaching the halfway point, right? In this amazing description of the man. Because this isn't, even though we're talking about how we are supposed to live, this is how he lived. And there's this one odd subsection that I'm putting in at level five. And that is, I'm calling it the misunderstood. And what we're headed into in level six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 are so fantastic, so profound but to be able to carry the glory of God the way that we are assigned, level five is essential. And there's so many of us here that just wish we could delete level five, act like what Eric's about to say you could just somehow ignore. But level five is a development of our maturity that is of the utmost importance because God has to deal with every remnant of pride and self-exaltation inside of you. If he is going to work through you, he needs you out of the way. He needs you to be the head butler in the estate, but be willing to be hidden to truly showcase the owner of this estate, Jesus Christ. And so I'm calling it the misunderstood. You could call it the humiliated, but that might be a little strong. I'm already just trying to keep you around, right? I don't want you to be scared off from this growth and maturity in Christ Jesus. But God needs to allow us to be hit. He needs to allow us to walk through a narrow channel. It's called the narrow way, which narrow in that context in the Greek means a way of difficulty and compression. It says few are those who find it. The way of Jesus is a way that is pockmarked with slander, false accusation, belittlement, derision, revilement, scourging, crucifixion, crowns of thorns, Nail wounds, mockery, jeering, jesting, and the like. We're like, um, could I reveal the glory of God and skip that? And I, in agreement with the entire New Testament, as Paul is enunciating this over and over again, Peter is going to enunciate it too. And they're going to teach us what's called the doctrine of suffering. They're going to say, actually... The glory of God flows out of this. There is no time in all of history that we have seen the glory of God more clearly than at the cross. It's when a man, in obedience to the Father, is going to relinquish his life, and he is going to suffer greatly. And we are going to see a magnificent revelation of every attribute of our God in one scene. 
And it is not just that he suffers, it's how he suffers and why he suffers that is going to give us a pattern and a template for the growth of a man or a woman. But it's the picture of the man. John eleven thirty seven, and some of them said, speaking of Jesus, could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Why is Lazarus his good friend dying? And yet Jesus is called by the father to leave town. Jesus could have healed him, but the father is working in and through Jesus this thing called being misunderstood. In fact, you could almost say the book of John is written by John to express the misunderstood Jesus. It's like one of the great themes in the gospel of John. And so over and over again, you're going to see Jesus need to follow the father and be misunderstood by the crowd. And I don't know if you've ever been misunderstood or you've ever been falsely accused. It doesn't feel good, guys. In our humanity, we want to repel that. We want to run from it. We want to protect ourselves from it. The same way if someone is shooting a rubber band at your nose, what would you do? You would move. It's the same thing with false accusation, with slander, any of the above that we're talking about. Your instinct, humanly speaking, is to get out of the way. No, no, not me. That isn't what I signed up for. Actually, you gave yourself to Jesus. He has put a harness upon you. He is leading you in a direction of great victory. Well, this doesn't sound like victory. You know what's going to come even in this story of Lazarus? Yeah, there's misunderstanding, but guess what? In the long run, in the fullness of the story, the glory of God is revealed. And the purposes of Jesus, even though they seem strange in the moment, are going to be understood that this was for a greater glory. And the same is true for all of the difficulties, all of the strangulation moments in our life where we wish we could get out. But God is doing something in us in those moments that is preparing us to effectively carry the glory of God at the next levels. Psalm 22, 6 through 8. So this is written a thousand years before Jesus. And it's speaking specifically of the cross of Christ. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. He's God Almighty, yet he's hanging as a common criminal on a tree, which was a symbol in the Jewish culture of being accursed, which means you're rejected of men, you're hanging between the two. You're rejected of this earth, and you're rejected of heaven. He's rejected of both, and yet... He's a savior. That word for worm is the crimson worm or the scarlet worm, which was an actual worm that you got the red dye of scarlet from. And the way that that worm would work is it would affix itself to wood. And then it would give birth to its babies, if you will. I was going to say larva, but that's not as pretty. And then it would die and give up its life to surround it and coat it with a red coating. And it would give up his life to prosper the life of its babies. And that is the same word that is used here. And of course, this is the cross. If you read the rest of Psalm 22, you're going to say, that's the cross of Jesus Christ. And he was a worm and no man. You see, there's a reason why we need to go through level five. It's because God wants to build heroes in this earth. And every single one of us, it's instinctive, guys. I don't know even how to say it, but that word, even the word hero, 
is something we like a magnet are drawn to. It's like, I want that. I want to be that. What is that? Lord, is it even possible? Some of us don't even consider it possible. It's like, well, that's for a different sort of person. And yet God actually in his construction process takes every single one of us towards the same destination to be a hero. But to be a hero, you have to have all that arrogance and that pride and your self-interest dumped out. If you really want to be used by the king of kings, it can't be for your glory. It can't be because you have an itch to be seen. You have an itch to be on the front page of Time magazine. You have an itch for some sort of fame, some renown, some wealth. You have to be willing to let go of all of that. Job 29. If you want to know my fascination with the number 29, uh, this is where it comes from. Speaking of Job, but really speaking of Jesus. I delivered the poor that cried and the fatherless and him that had none to help him. The blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My judgment was as a robe and a diadem. I was eyes to the blind, and feet was I to the lame. I was a father to the poor, and the cause which I knew not I sought out. And I broke the jaws of the wicked and plucked the spoil out of his teeth. Yeah, like that. That's what God wants to grow up in all of us. Our hands are free, guys, to be able to rescue why did you get strong? Why is God investing so much in you? Not so that you can hoard the strength, but so that you can spend the strength. Why did he give you resource? To give it. Why did he give you muscle? To give it. Why did he give you time? To give it. Why did he save you from your own ailments, your own distractions, so that you could spend that focus on a dying world around you and see them set free? The reason he is building you strong is so that you can give that strength to a lost world that is weak. I could say Christianity 101. That's just how it works. But so many of us have been caught up in a Christianity that's so self-focused that we don't see it anymore. That we're not living outward. We're living inward. Our 1% outward is great compared to 0%. I'm not going to argue that. But 1% is still not the calling we've received. God wants to amp up that percentage, get it from one to 2%, and how about we go up to three, and maybe we could start to increase to four. God's after 100%. Psalm 18, for by you, says David, I can run against a troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. This is hero stuff, guys. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and sets me on my high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. I have pursued my enemies and overtaken them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. Whew. Boy, does Psalm 18 stir me. When I was first developing the curriculum for Ellerslie, Psalm 18 was going to be my template for the entire 12-week semester. And I was going to go through Psalm 18. If you just look at Psalm 18 as an Ellerslie grad and just study it, you're going to be like, whoa, that is a pretty cool concept. Spiritual lessons from Psalm 18. Hmm, that could be a good series. Level 7, the chief. You see, we need chiefs in the kingdom of heaven. Most of the time, our chiefs are not coming through this growth process. And so we have chiefs that never had the self-exalting side of them dealt with. 
by God. So we have chiefs, I know this is going to sound pretty harsh, we have chiefs that are sometimes zeros, and they actually have never been transformed by Jesus Christ. It's somehow they're in these positions. Some of them are just clinging to the side of a boat, and half their life is stuck in frigid cold waters. They've never lived it. They have knowledge, but knowledge isn't the key of impartation. It's life lived. It's the doing of Scripture that is actually contagious. You want to change the world, you have to allow that truth to get inside and alter you. That's what this world is needing. The church must have its chiefs again. But to be a chief, to be a leader of the church, boy, who wants to go through that process? We have not grown up around a church with strong chiefs and that have been bent, that have been broken, that have gone through the mill of misunderstanding, but also have been turned outward to pour out their life for a lost and dying world. And when you haven't seen it, it's sort of hard to model it. Hebrews 11.34, talking about a whole bunch of chiefs. They quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the army, armies of the aliens. In Job 29, it talks about the chiefs. I actually don't think that's the correct scripture reference. I think it's verse 25, so I'm not sure why it, why it says that. But Job 29, I think it's 25. It could be 26, somewhere in that zone. When I went out to the gate by the city, when I took my seat in the open square, the young men saw me and hid. Actually, this is, sorry, it's the next verse that is 25. And the age arose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and put their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, then it blessed me. When the eye saw, then it approved me. Have you ever been around one of those guys or gals that has had a significant impact on your life? And when you're in their presence, you have a tough time speaking. You want to say something, but you sort of stumble over it because there's a certain honor and regard because you've watched something. And, you know, for me, it started with John Elway. It's sort of the wrong direction. But, you know, you get around one of those great athletes and you have the opportunity to say something. And it's usually the dumbest thing that you say. It's like, oh, boy, what was I saying? It's like, yeah, and I just, uh, I, I think you're great. Oh, oh come on. It's say something intelligent. Like, you know, in the, in the game, you know, and at, you know, it was third down and four when you did this. That was my favorite. You know, at least say something that sounds intelligent instead of you're great. Oh. But we've all felt that. And that's what we see here. When a chief in the kingdom of heaven walks down the street, in a sense, we have a respect and an honor. This is something that has been missing for a long time because every dad, when he walks into his home, technically, this is what should be there, where the chief walks in and everyone is like, he's home. And there's a strength associated with his leadership. There's an awe. There's even a reverence for it because we've begun to understand leadership again. Gentle, servant-hearted leadership that garners respect instead of curses and revilement from those that it leads. Oh, here we are with our Job 29, 25 guys after my big stink earlier. There it is. Listen to this. This is Job at the conclusion of that statement. I chose the way for them and sat as chief. So I dwelt as a king in the army, as one who comforts mourners. So God is building He's building his saints, but he also built Jesus. He built Jesus to demonstrate this very pattern. Level eight, the dead man. 
Now, some of you would have a reasonable argument to say, I thought we died a long time ago. Didn't we die? Didn't we pick up our cross and follow him? Didn't we die way back then? Well, you can answer that question. Have you ever noticed how many times you're going to come and die uh, along the journey and that there's still a little of you flickering right after you go through that process? Yeah, it's sort of like if a cross was taking one piece at a time, like your right hand dies, then your left hand dies, and your right foot dies, left foot dies. There's a, there's a process for this cross to finish its work. And there's little flickers of resistance against giving up certain things. You don't even realize that you have, are holding on to something for like five years into your Christian life of radically serving him, and then he touches something. You're like, Eric, what's that in your hand? Well, uh, I don't know, but this has always been in my hand. I mean, God, if you wanted to convict me of it, you could have convicted me of this five years ago. Yeah, but we're doing that now. You see, God works in layers in our life, and that's why I'm putting this at level eight, is that there comes a point when he needs to finish that work and remove us completely, because he has to ask us for our life. He has to ask us to lay down big things in our life. Sometimes that's family. If you've ever heard those missionary stories where someone needs to choose between God and their family, wow. Talk about needing to die. And, or how about when you know, as Jesus knew at Gethsemane, what death he was headed into, that the man side of him still had a yearning and he had to let it go. That man side still wanted to make a claim to say, is there another way? It's the same thing in us. There's a man side that wants to think through options and say, but, 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 but. And finally, it just says, not my will, but thine. Even if that means the death of a cross, publicly humiliated, hanging naked before a crowd of onlookers that are reviling you and are finding great pleasure in your pain. That is a, that is a big, hard pill to swallow for humanity. And yet the Spirit of God is maturing us and readying us to lay down our life. That's what he's doing. That's how he grows up every one of us. He's building us for a cross. That's not the end. He's building us truly for his glory, but to truly reveal the king, he's preparing us for Calvary. Not just a symbolic cross that we're picking up daily and carrying daily, but a very real suffering in this world through which God's glory will be manifest. Luke twenty two forty two. Father, Jesus speaking, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. It says that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. If you're sweating blood, you're very near death already. The crushing weight of Gethsemane was enough to press him to the point of near death. So, I mean... The cross is still up ahead. What this guy has to carry is so much greater than even what he's already carried, and he's almost already dead. And that's just the strain of what he is absorbing already. Isaiah 53, 7, speaking of Jesus, 750 years before Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. There's not many of us that can endure what Jesus is going to go through and not open our mouth. I'm innocent. Hey, they got the wrong guy. You see, what you see in Jesus is a dead man. You see a man harnessed. You see a man misunderstood. You see a hero. 
you're seeing the fullness of the manifestation of what God desires to mature in each one of us. Level nine, the mighty intercessor. What is Jesus doing on that cross? He's interceding for us. The reason he is willing to go to such great lengths is to represent the kingdom. But in this case, he's actually atoning. I mean, he's doing something more than we'll ever be called to do. But we are all called to be an intercessor. We're called to lay down our life, but not just for one. Jesus is moving from not just healing one person to healing nations. He is growing up in his job description, if you will. Paul is going to describe a similar calling upon his life. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That is a deep work of grace when you actually could wish yourself accursed that others could live. Whoa, what is that? That's something that probably most of us haven't yet tasted. But are we willing for God to do this work in us? Isaiah 53, 7 and verse 12. He has poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He made intercession for the sinners. He was standing on behalf of those that were even rejecting him in the situation. And finally, level number 10, the measure of perfection. That's what 10 is supposed to represent, right? But God is perfecting us. There's always a great theological question, and that is, okay, so this side of heaven, can we be perfect? Can we be perfected? It's an impossible question to answer, guys. So why are you asking it? You know, why does everyone want to press that point? Here's what I do know. Jesus was perfect. And we are clothed in his perfection. Underneath that perfect clothing of righteousness and perfection is a very imperfect work in progress, which is being perfected. Now, as far as I'm concerned, all of us should aim to be perfect this side of heaven. However, we also are going to receive mercy after mercy after mercy for the fact that we may not be. <laughs> and that's part of how we balance this, of recognizing, Lord, I want to reveal you without impediment. I want all blockage to be removed. And yet, there is a real need to receive the mercy and the grace of God constantly and to cherish his clothing of perfection the entire while but he is perfecting us. And this whole experience known as the church, this manifold revelation of God Almighty in this earth, in and through us, is going to continue, and listen, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Lord, we ask that you would do that in us. Lord, we tremble before the life that you lived. We stand in awe of it, but we also crave it. We desire, Lord, the fullness. We desire you to take us by the hand and lead us forward down the narrow way. We don't want to cling to the side of a ship, even though that ship be our salvation. We want to enter into it. We want Christ to enter into us. We desire to be made strong for the task at hand. Lord Jesus, don't leave us where we're at. Take us onward, upward, further in. Lord Jesus, we desire to reveal you to the nations. So change us, Lord Jesus. We ask this in the name and the authority of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.